Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea. To change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. Britain faces a simple and inescapable choice, wrote David Cameron somewhat notoriously, in May 2015, as he urged voters to give him the Commons majority he'd always craved. Stability and strong government with me, or chaos with Ed Miliband? What followed that less-than-prophetic tweet, now shared 43,000 times and counting, was, of course, the most chaotic period of instability this country has known in more than 70 years. The Conservative majority of 2015 would guarantee an in-out referendum on Britain's EU membership, without doubt the most seismic political contest that any of us, outside of Scotland at least, have ever experienced. On Monday, I will commence the process set out under our Referendum Act, and I will go to Parliament and propose that the British people decide our future in Europe. Through an in-out referendum, on Thursday, the 23rd of June. I can hardly believe I'm saying this, but next week will mark the five-year anniversary of the Brexit referendum, the vote which ended Britain's 47-year relationship with the EU and which changed the nation and its politics and its people forever. How you remember that campaign depends, of course, on which side of Britain's dividing line you sat. For some, it was the revolution of the common man finally turning the tables on ever more distant elites in Westminster, Brussels and beyond. For others, it was the moment dark forces overtook our politics, with millions duped into voting for something which they did not understand. What we can all agree on, I think, is that it was a deeply divisive moment for the country, underscored by a campaign in which both sides had a somewhat elastic relationship with the truth, and in which neither really came up smelling of roses at the end. But you don't need me to sit here today and pontificate on any of that. You don't need to hear my views, nor my referendum night anecdotes about watching the numbers come in from Sunderland and Newcastle and realising the revolution was real. 37,000, bottom right-hand corner of the screen. You were there. You watched it too. You'll remember the soaring feeling of triumph or the sinking feeling of despair as each extraordinary result came rolling in. The Leave campaign have won. So instead, for this, our season finale, I thought we'd mark the anniversary of the vote that changed everything by hearing from just two guests, the two men who oversaw those famous spin machines for Leave and for Remain. Craig Oliver had been David Cameron's Director of Communications since 2011, when he'd been poached from his position as a senior BBC News producer to run the Downing Street spin operation. He was 47 years old at the time of the referendum and one of Cameron's closest and most trusted aides, a central figure in all that happened during the coalition years. Craig's book, Unleashing Demons, remains one of the best primary sources we have from inside any of the referendum campaigns. On the opposing side, Paul Stevenson was Vote Leave's Director of Communications, one of the first, and undoubtedly the most important hire, made by its campaign director, Dominic Cummings, 
Just like Cummings, Paul was a former Tory special advisor and a veteran of numerous Eurosceptic campaigns of the early 2000s. But unlike his close friend, Paul has chosen to remain in the background since the vote, setting up a successful political consultancy and rarely speaking in public about the central role he played in Britain's departure from Europe. Until today, at least. Today, we'll hear the story of the Brexit campaign played out through these two men's voices. The thrust and the counter-thrust, the spin and counter-spin, the lie and the counter-lie that came to characterise that campaign. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And how does it all look now that a little time has passed? I decided after conducting these two interviews to extend the show today to a full hour in length. I hope you'll excuse the indulgence, but for me, this remains the greatest political story of our age. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week in a special edition of Westminster Insider, we're looking at how you spin a referendum, and at how two of the chief protagonists reflect on that whole messy business today. It's the summer of 2015, and David Cameron is gearing up for the fight of his life. Triumphant after his general election victory in May, the PM was preparing to renegotiate Britain's EU membership and then hold an in-out referendum the following year. Four areas of reform, four buckets in weird Whitehall speak, had been identified by Number 10 ahead of the talks with EU leaders. And Cameron was trying to sell this draft plan for reform to a sceptical business community. I was working in the city at the time. I'd been a Tory special advisor and I was working for the banking industry in the city. This is Paul Stevenson, then a banking lobbyist in his mid-30s and soon to become director of communications for Vote Leave. And one of David Cameron's aides came to brief the banks about the deal that David Cameron was going to deliver. And he set out the kind of famous four buckets of reform that were in the deal. And I remember thinking, wow, this is it then that's not good because that's not going to persuade many people. And in fact, as someone who quite wanted to be behind a reform agenda and then, you know, if the EU could reform, then I could subscribe to staying in. I just thought, well, if that's it, then maybe leaving is the best option. Stevenson's old friend, Dominic Cummings, had already been asked to lead the fledgling out campaign. Dominic Cummings, who I knew a bit. It was a special advisor with him in government. I think he briefed against me a few times. But, you know, we were mates. I sort of saw him from time to time. Uh, he got in touch and was out in my back garden, had a couple of beers, talked about the challenge. He said, do you want to be director of comms? I set out the sorts of things that I thought we needed to do, which was to talk about the EU in a way the Eurosceptic movement hadn't been talking about. So thinking about issues like impact on the NHS, thinking about issues on everyday life and the, just the broad reach of the EU and so on, rather than talking about sovereignty as much. And he was already thinking very much along those lines. So I, t- I said to my wife that night, I said, I think I might join this um, new campaign on the EU. And she was sort of like, oh, not that again. And I said, no, I think it's going to be a big deal. I think, you know, this referendum is going to be really important. She said, really? Really? Because it was always such a fringe issue, if you remember at the time, really. And she said, so, right, so you're going to basically fall out with everybody you used to work with in government and fall out with everybody that you now work with in the city um, and work with this Dom character. Is that a good idea? And I said, I said, yeah, look, I believe in it. It's unfinished business for me. And I do think the EU needs to change. 
it was not obvious to everyone how seismic a moment the referendum would be. The truth is, in 2014, I don't know that it had really occurred to me that it was going to be that big a deal. I never thought that I would be dragged into this and that it, this would be the battleground and that this is where the hill that so many people would choose to die on. This is Craig Oliver, David Cameron's Director of Communications in Downing Street. I did think that there was going to have to be a referendum at some stage. It felt to me like this massive boulder in the road of British politics and in one way or another it was going to have to be taken off the road. And I think that David Cameron actually spotted that no Conservative leader really was going to be in a situation where they weren't going to have to deal with it. If they didn't deal with it, it would deal with them. And I think there was a growing number of people in the Conservative Party who'd become kind of radicalised on the issue of Europe. They were literally obsessed by it. And I think that the, the idea that a Conservative leader was going to be able to just put it to one side and keep moving around it seemed to me for, to be for the birds. I think David Cameron had worked out that if he didn't give it to the party, then he would be replaced by somebody who would. There is nobody who would have won a Conservative leadership election without saying that there was going to be a referendum. I think that the truth is he he thought he'd win it. And I think that there isn't anybody, I think, until the small hours of the morning on June the 24th, 2016, who thought anything other. I think the truth is that everybody thought that Remain was going to win. And that was, in a way, part of our problem. Craig Oliver was hardly alone in this view. I did say to Dom at the time, we probably won't win this. Paul Stevenson. I wasn't confident of success, but I also thought it was important to have a well-run leave campaign in order that the flame of reform didn't die. Put it another way, if Cameron's quite thin deal came back and he won 70-30, 60-40, that was it, game over. You're never ever getting any change again. We needed to have a well-run campaign where people felt energised by the idea of Euroscepticism for that flame to stay alive. And so that's the other main reason I got involved. How clear an idea did you have in those early days what your campaign was going to look like in terms of strategy? Was that was that very decided very early on or did that sort of evolve over the months? Dom had been thinking about it for 10, 15 years. Part of the reason why I think we were in quite a good place strategically was because there was a core of people who'd been working on these campaigns in the past, like Business for Sterling, the No Euro campaign, campaign against European Constitution. Dom did some work for Matthew Elliott about a year or so before, where he did a lot of research, focus groups and other things. And he set out in a memo for what was then Business for Britain, what the strategy should be for any campaign. And the, that strategy stayed pretty much um, throughout the whole thing. So Dom had a very, very clear vision. And we actually understood the issue quite well, which I'd say counter to the, the Remain side, who probably didn't have that kind of depth of knowledge. To give you one example, if you remember, the Electoral Commission changed the question of the referendum um, in kind of late summer, early autumn. And they changed it from a yes-no question into leave versus remain, uh, which is, you know, now defines, you know, whole parts of the population. And we were going to call ourselves the no campaign. Suddenly this curveball of what you're going to call yourself now gets introduced. I remember spending ages with Dom trying to think about it. And his big thing was it needed to be an active phrase. So vote leave, right? And it gives a sense of action. You are doing something positive. Because uh, otherwise leave is a very negative word in many ways, right? Um, but it was going to be vote leave, get change. That's what we decided. And um, we thought it could be Obama-esque. And we were like, yeah, yeah, vote leave, get change. It's really positive. That's change you're going to believe in. It's change that won't 
And I, I briefed the team on it that morning and Dom came in characteristically a couple of hours later and just went, yeah, it's boat leave, take control. I was like, no, 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 home it. We, we're like, we've agreed this all. It's like, no, no, no. I've just gone back through all the research. And the strongest argument we had on the Euro campaign was keep the pound, keep control. And he said that was the most powerful thing. It resonated in all the focus groups. So I think that kind of grounding in his experience was, was super helpful. Before the campaign proper got underway, we all had to endure David Cameron's long and tortuous attempt to renegotiate the terms of Britain's EU membership. After months of touring EU capitals, and after several long nights of negotiations in Brussels, Cameron emerged, clutching a piece of paper he insisted would solve many of Britain's long-standing issues with the EU. Britain will be permanently out of ever closer union, never part of a European superstate. There will be tough new restrictions on access to our welfare system for EU migrants. No more something for nothing. He claimed it as a triumph. His opponents said it was nowhere near enough. Here's Craig Oliver. I think that we felt that we had to be seen to be trying and that we had to show that there was flexibility in Europe. And so much of this in the end is ultimately about perspective. If you are a Brexiteer, you felt that what the European Union was offering was negligible. Um, if you were David Cameron or if you were a European, you felt that it was actually genuinely seismic and significant in terms of what they had offered. And I think that if you genuinely spoke to Angela Merkel or any of the other big figures in Europe, they felt that perhaps they'd actually gone too far in offering a lot of stuff in terms of what was going on in about welfare also, one of the things that was always really spelled out as a major issue for the, the Leavers was ever closer union. If you look at their speeches in the run up to the referendum and to the run up to the end of the renegotiation, ever closer union was the sort of top billing in terms of the problem with Europe. We got an opt out of that. And then they said, well, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? It was extraordinary to be in that situation where stuff that apparently mattered was suddenly dismissed. But the one thing that you didn't get was something significant on limiting migration and in fact it was something that you didn't really ask for in a very serious way once I think Cameron realized that it just wasn't or he felt it just wasn't going to happen was was that the way that that was approached tactically wrong in retrospect I don't think it was I think that we realized that immigration was a problem but if you spoke to European leaders, again, like Angela Merkel, and said, look, freedom of movement's a real issue for the UK, uh, a lot of people feel betrayed by being told that very few people were going to come in after accession, and actually well over a million people ended up coming into this country. They feel betrayed by it. And we're asking them to be part of an institution that insists on unlimited immigration, regardless of circumstance. That's a problem. But if you spoke to Angela Merkel, she goes, hang on a minute, your country was part of doing a deal with Eastern Europe and telling us that we wouldn't be second class citizens again. Remember that she was brought up in Eastern Germany. And from her perspective, freedom movement was absolutely essential, absolutely crucial. So for her, it just wasn't on the table. And I think that David Cameron at that moment took the decision to just pragmatically move on. I asked Paul Stevenson how important the detail of David Cameron's deal was to everything that followed. It was pivotal. I think that is the key moment in the in that whole year of worth of debate, actually. The deal leaked, if you remember, in early February, which was a disaster that it leaked in that way without and they didn't really go out and defend it. 
we'd been prepping people in advance and they were holding unity in the Tory party with MPs and donors and others by saying, just you wait. When this deal comes back, there's going to be some stuff in there that's just amazing. Despite the fact they'd already briefed out exactly what they were trying to negotiate, they kept on saying, just you wait. You're going to look really silly. Okay, let's see. Let's see. And then the thing leaked and it was exactly as they said, in fact, weaker than they they said, right? It didn't address the big issues of the time. Which were? Well, I mean, the big issue was one of, do you control your own laws? The test that Boris was setting around sovereignty, but then also they were saying they were going to do something big on immigration. I mean, you don't, as a strategy, set up the big question that needs to be answered and then flunk the question with your own proposals. People now say the male, the son, they were always going to be on your side. They weren't. Like, you know, I remember chatting to senior people at both those papers early on. They said, we need to wait and see what's in this deal. We're giving the prime minister the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, basically when this deal finally came out, you could see that in the parliamentary opinion, it wasn't good enough. And so you had a huge number of Tory MPs come on board, led by very, very senior people like Michael Gove. I think people like Michael Gove come on board, gave permission to lots more MPs and to the likes of Rupert Murdoch and others to really go, okay, there is a possibility here that they might lose. And also, if I back leave, crucially, I might be backing the next prime minister in Boris and Michael Gove, right? So the deal was the thing that created the conditions for us to go on and win. And it sounds like then that you hadn't been confident all the way along that Gove and Boris Johnson would be joining the campaign. It really was a down to the wire thing, was it? Yeah, not confident at all. There was a lot of work went into it. Michael was in the social circle. You know, he was part of the leadership team, right? They were friends socially and, and, and their families were friends. But he'd always been a believer in this cause. Some of the campaigns I worked on earlier, the No Euro campaign, Michael was very involved in. The campaign against the European Constitution, Michael was very involved in, right? This was a deep-seated belief of his. Boris had pretty much invented Eurosceptic journalism in this country, right? So th- these people had cared about this issue for a long, long time. And was having those two on board as pivotal as people now see it? Yes. I, the way I describe it for the whole campaign, for us to win, many, many things needed to go our way. And they ended up doing that and we got the result that we did. The deal being seen as not up to the job, absolutely crucial. Boris and Michael coming on board and Giesler as well, I think are all absolutely crucial elements. If we didn't have those, I'm not sure we would have won. Boris, rock star politician, right? You know, As we've seen since, amazing appeal with the country. The Heineken politician who can reach parts of the country that no other Tory politician can reach. Michael was the guy who, because he was a former chief whip, because everybody knew of his relationship to David Cameron, because of his, he campaigned on this issue for so long, he actually gave permission to a whole bunch of kind of Cameroon politicians to come on board. And then Michael also was the kind of organising force and leader of the MPs, really, in many ways. And also because of his relationship with Dom, gave the campaign an ability to, to, to operate in, in the way that Dom wanted it to operate. In truth, David Cameron had not believed either Gove or Johnson would ultimately come out for leave and certainly didn't think they'd campaign as vigorously as they did. I can do. I will be advocating uh, vote leave uh, or whatever. That the European Union prevents us being a a proper self-governing country. Do you think they've won? I think there probably was a bit of naivety on, on David Cameron's part. Craig Oliver. 
I think that he thought that most people would just sort of toe the line or they would, you know, turn the volume down and shut up. I think he'd spoken to Michael Gove and said, look, I feel that I need to be making clear that I would leave, but I'm not going to be an active part of this campaign. And then a couple of days later, it turned out he was going to be chairman of Vote Leave and was doing every media opportunity available. And I think that did cut David Cameron very hard. Um, There was one moment during the campaign where a Saturday afternoon I had to phone up David Cameron and tell him that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove had written a 5,000 word letter that they'd given to the Sunday Times that basically was questioning his honesty and integrity over immigration. And I remember him saying to me, look, I'm just putting the phone down. I just can't talk about this. I just can't believe they're doing this. And then phoning me up 10 minutes later and saying, look, I'm sorry, I just needed to a moment to get over the fact that they're actually saying and doing that. I couldn't believe it. There was a situation where there was a deliberate positioning for where was the heart and soul of the Conservative Party going to be, even if we'd won this campaign. And I think there probably was a degree of naivety to the extent to which that was going to be played out. One of my biggest memories of the campaign is watching David Cameron realise the extent to which people were not necessarily going to go on friendship or years of working together and actually were going to take positions that ultimately felt comfortable or suited them. The arrival of Gove and Johnson gave Vote Leave the front men they desperately needed and made their other long-term plan to push Nigel Farage to the margins of the campaign a whole lot easier to achieve. So I think Boris summed it up to me quite well, you know, a month or so out. And he said, we can't have the stench of stale booze and fags over this campaign. We have to be a centrist campaign. And he was absolutely right. Boris has an amazing political nose and that's why he is the winner that he is. And I think, you know, it was very clear that Nigel Farage had a constituency of people in the country and they voted UKIP. But there was a ceiling on that. And also there was a lot of people who said, you know, if there are two camps in this country one that's run by Nigel Farage and another one, I'm in the other one, thank you very much. You know, he had a reasonable argument, which was, I've campaigned on this issue for years, I should be the leader of the campaign. And we were trying to say, sorry, we don't think you're the right man, and actually we think there's a more centrist, conservative appeal, and with, you know, mainstream parties, Labour and Tory parties, should be the front people of the campaign. For Vote Leave, this succession of early victories, winning the PR war over Cameron's deal securing the backing of some of the Tory party's biggest hitters and much of the Tory press, had given them a genuine chance of success. But the Remain side still held plenty of aces up its sleeve. Or so we all thought. Coming up in part two, Craig Oliver and Paul Stevenson will take us inside the short campaign when the totemic battle over Britain's future would ultimately be won and lost. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. In the time it takes to listen to this advert, buy now, pay later customers in the UK will have saved £100 in interest charges. Over a year, that adds up to £76 million, the same as it costs to build the London Eye. We're able to save customers money because we charge retailers a fee instead of the customer, and 14 million shoppers in the UK seem to like it. So why pay interest and why pay fees when there's a smarter way to pay? Klarna. Cool. There's another 100 quid. Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. In part 
public, as you may recall, there wasn't much on which the Leave and Remain camps agreed. And from Boris, well, he's the life and soul of the party. But he's not the man you want driving you home at the end of the evening. But privately, their views of the voters and the messages required to win them over were remarkably similar. Here's Craig Oliver. Very basically, we did a lot of research into where the electorate was on this, and roughly a third of people were going to remote vote Remain come what may. Roughly a third of people were going to vote Leave come what may, and there was nothing you can do with it. And there was a group in the middle who were persuadable. Now, obviously, that is where the battleground is going to be, and you test a number of arguments with that group and see where they are. When we tested the arguments about, you know, the wonders of being part of the EU, isn't it amazing, countries, cooperation, um, there hasn't been a war since for 75 years, all of that sort of stuff, um, actually we found it drove people towards the Leave campaign. And what we saw underneath the surface was a lot of people weren't comfortable with the dilution of their nationality. They felt that there was a degree to which their patriotism was being put into question and checked by the EU, and they worried about that. And the only argument that we found that really worked with them was, is this going to make me richer or poorer? And if you made the case that economically you were better off in the EU, you were more likely to persuade people than not. If you made the case that actually, isn't it all nice that we can all be friends together and aren't we all truly Europeans? It did not work. Vote Leave's internal research showed exactly the same thing. Paul Stevenson says the Remain side's basic approach, the so-called project fear warnings about the impact on the economy, was absolutely the right one. All the opinion research showed there was three camps in British public opinion. A third who were in regardless, you know, love supranationalism, probably want the UN to run the entire world. There's a third who were, let's just leave now... Uh, you know, UKIPers, basically. And those two camps were always going to vote in and out. And then there's a middle third, the swing middle, who both sides were fighting over, broadly. Which, by the way, is why when people say the Remain campaign should have just run a campaign waving EU flags and saying we love Europe, it wouldn't have won. It would have appealed to that, basically that fringe third and not to the middle. And so for us, really, the battleground was, you had this head v heart decision. Head of people saying, I'm worried about I heard before the euro is worth 3 million jobs. Will we all lose it? Will Sunderland close down if we leave and that kind of stuff? Versus the heart decision, which is people did want control over their own laws and they wanted Britain to be in charge of its own destiny. So we needed to neutralise the economy and basically give people permission to vote with their hearts rather than with their heads by saying, actually, the economy is not going to fall off a cliff. To neutralise the economy for this persuadable section of voters... The Vote Leave campaign needed a simple message that the public and their treasured public services like the NHS would actually be better off as a result of leaving the world's biggest trading bloc. Now, to me, that sounds like kind of a difficult message to sell. Their approach was to plaster it across the side of an enormous red bus. <laughs> so I just thought, we want thrills and spills and fun and excitement and we want to be the people. And I, just, I remember watching sort of footage of John Major out on his soapbox in 1992, which famously was credited with him winning that election, him connecting people. I just thought, we've got to do something like this. We've got to get out with the people. And also having been out with Boris, he, he excels at what we would call in the business a walkabout, which is literally wandering down the street, which most politicians will run a mile from because you could have anyone shouting at you. It's not controlled at all. It can have disastrous results. 
But Boris just attracts a crowd. As soon as he goes to a place, hundreds of people come towards him. They all want a bit. Some people will be saying rude things. A lot of people pat him on the back. And he was just brilliant at it. And so it was like, let's get a bus. Let's go around the country. It's quite old school. Buses kind of made a comeback in 2016. And let's make it red. And then I remember the designer sat there on his screen. I walked past and I was like, saw this picture of a bus with the kind of famous, we send 350 million a week from the NHS. Then they had the NHS logo on it. I was like, is that the bus? He's like, yeah, Dom's just, that's what Dom wants. I was like, I just looked at Dom and he's sort of dancing around doing a jig. And that was the thing about that campaign. Dom's made decisions and we did it and we just cracked on and we didn't have loads of committees. And you can argue, so the cows come home about, about the bus and 350 million and so on. But, you know, we cracked on and did it. And I think, again, having NHS front and centre of every single shot was just really, really important. One question about the 350 million and then we'll move on. Was it a stroke of genius to use the gross figure, even though you must have known that the EU did not cost us £350 million a week, in fact? Or was it disingenuous and maybe, in retrospect, you shouldn't have done it? I think there were a range of numbers that could have been used, and £350 million was at the upper end. The decision was actually made before I came onto the campaign, but 350 was the gross number the total amount that we sent to the EU and had no control over. You could argue we should have used 280, which was the net number. You can argue we should have used 230, which is another calculation, right? We picked the number at the top of the scale of what was acceptable, right? What I didn't anticipate was the lack of discipline on the other side to go, aha, if we can just knock out 350 and get it to 280 million, then we'll win. And all they did was create arguments about how much money we were sending. So I don't think it was necessarily a stroke of genius. I think it became very clear quite early on to us that actually they were making a massive mistake by elevating this issue. And we wanted to talk about the cost of the EU and the lack of control of the money and how it's spent as much as possible. It was one of our strongest messages. And the fact that that the Lib Dems every day attacked us on it, people were cheering in the office every time Norman Lamb got on the BBC to have a go. It was about 350 million. It was was brilliant. So you, you picked the biggest figure and you went up with it. And I would say some of your other campaigning was quite aggressive by British political standards from time to time when you called Cameron toxic and you threatened to get ITV shut down almost. Were those sorts of things, when you were doing those things, were they part of a grand strategy to upset people or were you just reacting quickly to the hill in pushing back as hard as you can and finding that it was working for you so you do it again? So we were kind of, guerrilla campaign right and so we were fighting to be heard at times and you know the mantra in the office was we always double down so people come to us and say this is outrageous what you've done and we'd go back and explain very clearly on our key messages why we thought we were right and we always start to our guns i think in part that was a very dom approach i think partly it was the kind of people versus the establishment thing you can argue that at times we didn't get everything right And I'd say that that speed, that decisiveness, that going with your gut judgment meant that we, nine times out of 10, it worked quite well for us. There were clearly some times where we maybe overstepped the mark or got the judgment wrong, but that is the nature of the beast. For all its faults, Vote Leave's agile command structure and aggressive approach was clearly effective. I asked Craig Oliver if, by contrast, the sprawling setup of the various Remain campaigns was actually part of their problem. Yeah, I think that they, I think that that is true, and I think one of the issues that we had 
the thing that we had on our side was there were a lot of people who were supportive of it, but they were also felt that they, they were their own identity, their own people, and wanted to have their own views on it. So making that coalition work, I think, was quite hard sometimes, pulling it together and making it speak with one voice was incredibly difficult. I do also think that the Labour Party was a was a fundamental problem. I think if Ed Miliband had been in charge and you'd had shadow cabinet ministers like Yvette Cooper and Ed Balls and that kind of thing, they would have pulled their weight a lot more. The thing that we found was a huge problem was that we actually gridded a lot of activity for, for communications. We'd often leave spaces for the Labour Party and they wouldn't take them up. On the night before, you'd either have Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonnell pulling out. You'd have a situation where Jeremy Corbyn literally went on holiday during the campaign or gave it seven out of ten in terms of his enthusiasm for it. I remember Alan Johnson was supposed to be a big figure in, in, in the Remain campaign. Good Morning Britain had offered him a slot the next morning. They'd even offered to put a satellite truck outside his house. He refused to do it because he thought the only thing that was useful for him to do would be the Today programme. Now, one thing I know, we didn't need to win over Today programme listeners. We did need to win over Good Morning Britain viewers. And that was a real problem. about them staying in the EU? Oh, I'd put myself in the upper half of the five to ten, so we're looking at seven, seven and a half. Ooh, not quite. Maybe seven, seven and a half. You're more, than, well, you're more than welcome to jump on the couch if you want, Jeremy. <laughs> no, no, right. I think if any other of the Labour leadership contenders had been leader of the Labour Party, then we would have lost. When I talk about we needed everything to go our way for us to win, that's one of the key things, right? You know, at no other time in the last 30 or 40 years had the leader of the Labour Party, being anti-EU. And so what happened was there wasn't really a Labour campaign until it was almost too late. So it was after the local elections in May when they really came out and started working as a, you know, as a party. Um, huge, they had a huge amount of money they could spend, they had a huge, huge amount of ground troops, and those people just went out there. We were out early on, you know, red leaflets, you know, we, we tried to own the colour of red because we didn't want to be seen as just too tall. We had some good figures like Gisela Stewart who were very um, centre ground and appealed to a, a large number of Labour voters the is out there no. campaigning. The European Union just isn't working anymore. The noble idea dreamt up in the last century is turning into a nightmare. His silence allowed us to move into a space that shouldn't have existed. And what lots of people missed, but our data guys spotted early, was... If you looked at the Labour voters in a poll, they were by and large for Remain. But actually, when you dug down into the numbers, the working class vote was absolutely split. So he allowed us to go after the working class British small C conservative um, vote that was naturally quite Eurosceptic, and they conceded a huge amount of ground there. And I think, say, if Andy Burnham um, had been in charge, I don't think we would have had as much space to move into. Another key battleground for both campaigns, of course was over airtime, and nothing mattered more than the sometimes tortured coverage of the BBC. My impression that Remain gets better placement in BBC far headlines. Far too much from the Brexit side. Once again, Vote Leave had a plan. I said to the BBC early on, no one from this campaign is going to attack the BBC. We are not going to complain about you day in, day out. We're not going to do it publicly. I can't control every single person on this campaign, but the campaign itself will not do that. But I do want to have conversations with you privately about where we believe there to be bias or a lack of balance. I think they responded relatively well to, you know, what was a grown-up and private conversation rather than a public spat. Secondly, we recorded 
every single interview on major bulletin programs, so the 6 o'clock news, 10 o'clock today program, and also the big interview slots, the Mars and so on. And every couple of weeks, Lee Kane, who was then head of broadcast, sent a report to everyone at the BBC, everyone at the ITV and Channel 4, senior executives, which said, this week you've given the Remain campaign this many hours and us this many hours. And at the start, the difference was pretty stark. And by the end, things started to level up a bit. And that was just simply a factual reporting. Plenty of Remain supporters, however, were enraged as the broadcaster, bending over backwards to be seen as impartial, started giving credence to some of the more spurious stories floated by the Vote Leave side. I think that the BBC really, really does sometimes struggle with the concept of impartiality. Um, And that they often sometimes mistake balance for impartiality. Craig Oliver. And I know for a fact that, because I've spoken to a lot of editorial figures at the BBC, that during the referendum campaign, they felt that they were effectively doing a one day it's a leave story, the next day it's a, a remain story that, that is the lead. And I think they've got themselves rather tied in knots on that. I think they ended up, because of that, doing lead stories that actually, if they really, really thought about it, um, really weren't good. And the day that I always remember was actually that the day Joe Cox was murdered. And I remember waking up that morning and hearing the BBC lead on a leave suggestion that the governor of the Bank of England was effectively involved in an international conspiracy to falsify information to make us stay in the EU. And I think if they stopped and thought for a minute and saying, thought, hang on a minute, this guy's job is literally supposed to be to protect the economy of this country. Is it really okay to lead on something which is basically questioning what he is doing and how he's doing it to the extent that they did. And then later that day, Nigel Farage released the poster and a few hours later, Joe Cox was murdered. Now, I'm not saying that all of these things are systemically or fundamentally connected, but what I am saying is looking back, reflecting on that day, it really did suggest to me that there's something really basically wrong here with our media and with our politics. And I suppose my long-term reflection is the extent to which we delved into tribalism and became tribalistic and inability to accept that the other side may have a point or that we could honestly disagree was a very serious problem. When did you sense it was starting to go wrong? You you said you'd gone into it feeling pretty confident, but you must have had a sense of it drifting away from you and getting a hell of a lot closer than you'd expected through the campaign. Can you remember key points? I mean, I think I always thought in the end that we would just do it. I always thought that, you know, we would just scrape through. I think that we'd certainly realised from the beginning of the campaign that we had problems. But I think it was about 30 days out where we as a government had made a promise that we would get net immigration down to the tens of thousands and the figures came out and said that they I think it was well over 300,000 and that was a severe problem at that point we could not change the subject from immigration try as we might and that was a massive losing wicket for us every time we tried to make the case for immigration the our, our argument basically boiled down to the point that we were recommending be part of an international institution that insists on unlimited freedom of movement regardless of circumstance And that was a severe problem for us. People didn't like it. And by the way, they probably have a point. As you look at that now with the wonderful benefit of hindsight, shouldn't you have seen that coming? Shouldn't you not have realised that this was going to be the crucial issue and that it wasn't something that you could ever have changed and therefore you didn't want to get yourself in a position where you were campaigning effectively for freedom of movement? 
Well, it sounds um, such an obvious thing to say, but I do think that 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 point that you're making about hindsight having 2020 vision, I don't think we realised the extent to which immigration was going to be placed front and centre in the campaign. And frankly, the degree to which it was going to be utterly misrepresented. I mean, we live in a country where a few hundred people trying to get in in boats across the channel is literally presented as a national crisis and a national emergency. The issue was blown out of proportion magnified and amplified to the most extraordinary degree if you look at the campaign of vote leave over and over again they were misleading people that turkey was going to join the eu imminently and a result of that 80 million people brackets muslims could actually come to the uk that is a deeply uncomfortable thing for them to have been asserting and was a problem for us famously vote leave had largely avoided campaigning on immigration until the final weeks of the campaign. The migrant crisis, uh, it's escalating and uh, speeding up uh, Turkey in particular, but other accession countries are coming in. Then we will continue to be like passengers locked in the back of a minicab with a wonky sat-nav, driven by a driver who doesn't have perfect command of English and going in a direction we frankly don't want to go. NHS was one of the things we absolutely hammered throughout. I think towards the end, you had the figures come out around immigration numbers, which had record levels of E, and that really framed the last month of the debate. We got to quite a big back and forth between, you know, Boris and Michael questioning whether David Cameron could actually hit his immigration targets. And actually, it just became just this really, really big issue. And really, it was the most visible demonstration of a lack of control. But but it was also part of your strategy, right? I mean, you knew those figures were coming and you had a week called Turkey Week where you campaigned very strongly on that specific issue saying that Turkey was going to be joining the EU shortly and producing figures around that. I mean, that was going a lot further than where the public were at that time. So early on, a decision was taken that if you go back to that third, 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 that if we came out at the beginning and just talked about immigration and basically were the UKIP campaign, there were lots of people who would basically just say, say more Eurosceptics and not really look at us again. And I think if you go back to the original literature that we had, yeah, we talked about the NHS and the cost of the EU, trying to talk about the EU in a different way, in a new way that people, you know, to rewake people up to the issue, reawaken them. We knew Nigel Farage was going to talk about immigration. We knew that people were concerned about it, but we we were trying to demonstrate to the swing middle of the country that there was a very, very good case for leaving the EU that didn't rely on immigration, which I you know, fundamentally believe to be true. What I'm saying is by the end, you have stuff like those stats coming out that start to frame the debate in a, in a certain way. And also there's certain issues that, are getting more so if you look at our grid throughout the last few weeks we basically talked about nhs money crime immigration and repeat we just repeated those all the time the one that got more cut through than anything else was immigration uh, because it was such a salient issue at the time to be clear though this was no accident after speaking to paul i had a look back through my email inbox from late may and early june 2016 There are endless vote leave press releases from that period with headlines like EU law keeps killers in the UK. David Cameron has questions to answer on Turkey. Gordon Brown has no answer on immigration. 
Britain clears path for Turkey's EU membership. Public services buckling under pressure from uncontrollable migration. Danger of Turkish accession clearer by the day. There are many more. I also remember being invited up to Vote Leave HQ for a notorious press conference where Michael Gove handed out leaflets titled Paving the Road from Ankara, setting out in detail how Turkey could be an EU member by 2020 and forecasting up to 5.2 million new arrivals to Britain over the subsequent decade. I asked Paul if he was comfortable with that aspect of the campaign. So Turkish membership of the EU was UK government policy. It was the EU's policy. It was Turkish government policy. This was a debate about the next 30 to 40 years of the country. If you remember at the time, the, the title that you referred to, Paving the Road from Ankara to Brussels, was David Cameron's own words in a speech in Ankara, where he said, I want Turkey to join the EU and the UK fully supports it. He then a few years later is saying, it's a lie that Turkey might join the EU. Well, that's the, that is the sort of thing also that doesn't play very well with the public, where they say, well, you said this here, politician, and now you're claiming it's a lie. So, like, it is undoubtedly true that if Turkey joins the EU, there would be, there is potential for large amounts of immigration. In the same way, by the way, that when the, the accession countries from Eastern Europe joined, Tony Blair famously said there would only be about 15,000 people come. And we know by about a factor of 10 or 100, that was way, way out. And it had a fundamental change on the country. So I think it was a perfectly valid thing for us to talk about. Craig Oliver does not agree. The Leave campaign very deliberately and systematically catalyzed division, deliberately set out to play upon the psychological fears of people and deliberately push a sense of something as being the root cause of a problem that they felt very deeply and actually wasn't very honest in doing so. But isn't all fair in love and war? I mean, we heard George Osborne coming out during the campaign telling us what was going to happen to house prices if we voted Brexit, what was going to happen with an emergency budget if we voted a Brexit. None of those things proved to be true. So, you know, don't both sides just say what they need to say to try and win because winning is everything in these situations. Well, look, I mean, the thing you can criticise the nature of referendum saying that it's very binary and it forces people to extremes. And I think that there is a lot in that. I think at the end of the day, you do actually have to look yourself in the eye and say, was I honest? Is that actually true? Or am I actually presenting a picture of things which is designed to mislead? I think a lot of people could probably come to the end of the referendum campaign in 2016. And if they're honest with themselves, they weren't necessarily doing that. They were deliberately creating fear. They were deliberately misleading. I think that the Leave campaign sometimes very deliberately played to the baser instincts. And I think your point about all's fair in love and war, no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. There are actually rules to war. There are things like the Geneva Convention. The truth is that actually you have a responsibility to argue a case passionately, firmly, but do it in a way that is not deliberately misleading, is not designed to wind up tension and create division. To what extent, though, did, did your campaign also use fear? I mean, you've been accused endlessly of Project Fear, famously so. Um, was there some truth in that with the dire economic warnings? 
I think to, there is an element of truth in it. Um, I don't think it is nearly on the industrial scale that the Leave campaign was doing it. There are some things that, if I'm honest, um, I feel uncomfortable about. I thought that the budget saying that you were going to consider having to cut the NHS was a mistake. We actually did not know that that was being planned. Would it be easy for... Uh, folk who pay their taxes for the public services, of course not. But we would have imposed this on our country. And there is an alternative. You know, if we vote to remain in the... I woke up that morning and heard that story and was deeply surprised by it. And by the way, so was the Prime Minister. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is we felt very uncomfortable about that. Not only do I think it was sending a picture out there that was not really true... But I think also what it did was it just handed something direct to our opponents who immediately threw their hands up in the air in horror and started shouting and screaming. And within minutes of the story landing, I think you had 50 MPs who were already saying that they would not be part of such a thing to cut the NHS and that it was a, a ridiculous thing to suggest. And it was. But Craig's own assessment of his side's underlying approach is stark. The reality is, I think, that the metropolitan liberal elite, of which I consider myself probably part of and that I think we had assumed that that people would listen to the establishment the metropolitan liberal elite they would do it ultimately they might not like it but they'd probably do what was probably good for them in the end I think that probably was an assumption that was below the surface if people are honest about it what's certain is that in those final weeks of the campaign the polls shifted decisively and the leave campaign at last drew level and by some measures began to inch its way into the lead. This is our cue. This is our chance. This is our moment. We knew we had an enthusiasm gap. Paul Stevenson. Our people were broadly three times more revved up than the Remain campaign. So we knew our guys would be out there pounding the streets, handing out leaflets and so on. So while you had the headline figures, which showed that they were ahead, we knew that our people were more motivated to actually turn out. And therefore, we probably had a differential advantage that wasn't being shown in the headline opinion polls. And then a few weeks out, the polls started to really go in our favour. And there was an Ipsos Mori poll in the Evening Standard, which had us like 10 points ahead. Uh, and we were like, wow, we, we really are ahead. On the day, on the 23rd itself, I, I did what I normally do ahead of an election, went home and had a kip at lunchtime because I want to stay up through the night. And I sort of woke up groggy about five, six o'clock and called a guy called Nick Varley, who is in charge of our ground campaign. And I said, you know, the betting markets have gone the wrong way. The money markets were going the wrong way, right? You know, the pound was soaring because the investors were expecting that um, uh, Remain was going to win. And I said, is this what you're feeling? Because it doesn't feel right to me. He said, I'm speaking to people on the ground and our people have turned out. I think we are winning. So, okay. And I'm on an MP WhatsApp group and all these MPs are you know, saying, there's a ward in my constituency. You know, that ward never votes. Right, it's like a, the the working class people are turning out, and they're all putting up our posters saying "I voted Leave." It's so there's all this kind of anecdotal stuff, and I'm like, well, if the markets are going one way and betting markets are going the other way, and our guys, I mean, I trust our guys, but you know, you're doubting yourself the whole time. And I was with Boris that evening. He voted very late, you know, in classic fashion, and we went back to his house in Islington, and he was just getting all sorts of people, like the head of polling companies and others, and people who commissioned private polls, saying, "We've got it. It's like fifty fifty, forty nine fifty one, you know." And it, basically, everyone was like, "It's there or thereabouts," right? Everyone's very nervous. And then you start to get a word from the different counts and people are there because what they do, as you know, Jack, they open up the ballots and you look at the samples to check, you know, and people can see them visually, you know, the stack of remain, the stack of leave. 
And so you start getting anecdotes of all the samples and we were looking and we were ahead of where we need to be in Sunderland, like significantly ahead of where we needed to be in Sunderland. And we had the guys had their models of like, where do we need to be in each constituency? We start plugging it all in. And um, yeah, you know, the, the excitement starting to build, you know, the whole team's in the office and half their mates and MPs and John Bolton walked in, who, you know, it's kind of this weird night, um, cabinet ministers and others and, people start to cheer the results and we're ahead but because we've got kind of like a feed sort of half an hour ahead of where the official results are because you've got you've got network of people on the ground we could see we were ahead and then the london results were coming in much worse for us than we needed them so they were really kind of turning out for remain so the data guys were sent away just to like work out like what's worst case scenario and they came back and they were just like there aren't enough people in london to counteract what we've done in the rest of the country we're going to win and then you're kind of you know Champagne cork started being popped and people, you know, started thinking about the next morning and, you, you know. So, yeah, it was quite it was quite a night. When you look back on that now, what are your emotions when you're just reliving it now? Yeah, it's just just huge excitement. It's um, pride um, that we've done it. I, I think it's just that emotion. We've actually done it. We're doing it. We're Like, we've... This thing we thought that everyone told us we couldn't do and everyone's told us we're running the most terrible campaign ever and all this kind of stuff. And then suddenly, like, you know, we've gone from, as I say, this kind of ragtag bunch of sort of guerrilla fighters going all the way to taking on the might of the British establishment and the global establishment in some ways and winning. You know, that's kind of... So, yeah, it's quite a nice feeling. 33 million people went to the ballot box. They're reflected on a 40-year history of our relationship with the European Union. And by majority, they decided that they wanted to leave. British people have made the decision. We must respect that result, and Article 50 has to be invoked now so that we negotiate. And a sense of um, real sadness um, and, and concern for the future. I think we felt at the end of it like, um, you know, fighters in the ring, you know, that were out on our feet. Craig Oliver. Or, you know, that we were in the trenches and we'd run out of ammunition and that we were, you know, had been overrun and were like, bayonetting people and that it was you know it was it was not a pleasant experience and I think that the moment that I suppose I really remember most was going through to the Prime Minister's study at four in the morning and we were talking about whether or not he really did have to resign and I think the feeling was yes he did and there was a lot of sadness in that. But I think in some ways there was a degree of relief. I think that, you know, the fact that, you know, it was over. It had been, you know, I don't think anybody could say to us. A lot of people could say, look, you made a lot of mistakes and they'd probably be right. I don't think anybody could say to us that we didn't give it our all. We absolutely did. Um, and at the end of it, we were, you know, physically and emotionally exhausted by the whole thing. When you look back at it now, do you feel like the campaign itself, the short campaign, sort of the die was already cast in retrospect, given you had these big Tory figures lined up against you, given there was no big deal on migration? Or do you feel like if the campaign had gone differently, been fought differently, given how close the result was, it could actually have gone the other way? I think it could have gone the other way if a number of circumstances had been different. I think if Jeremy Corbyn had not been leader of the Labour Party, it would have gone another way. I think if Michael Gove and Boris Johnson had chosen not to lead the Leave campaign, I think it would have gone differently. I think if immigration had not been the central issue and you had not had a media that sort of made that the only issue really for the last 30 days... Um, I think, you know, that probably would have had 
a significant impact. But I think at the end of the day, something was going on that nobody really spotted, uh, that there was a sense in which people wanted to give the establishment a kick. People were hurting after 2008. People did feel that they hadn't had an increase in their standard of living. They did feel that the metropolitan liberal elite had sold them a pup over globalisation and, and, and that kind of thing. And they did feel that a lot of figures were sort of having it good their own way and not really understanding their issues. So ultimately, I think there was something pretty seismic going on underneath the surface. And a lot of us, in fact, probably all of us, even the, the, the great Dominic Cummings, hadn't really fully understood quite how much that was the case. Do you think, in retrospect, the, this, the in campaign just got it wrong? What do you think now when you look back on it? Do you wish it done differently? Well, no, I, and I don't think it could have been done differently. And I think there's quite a lot of disingenuousness from a, what I would call the ultra-Remainers about this. Um, there was a kind of naivety about ultra-Remainers sometimes where they thought, look, if we all just link hands and sing Ode to Joy, everybody will see the majesty of the European Union and fall to the ground and worship it and say how wonderful it is. I mean, that's clearly not true. I asked Paul Stevenson if a different Remain campaign could have beaten Vote Leave. Yes, definitely. Had we wound back the clock and not tried to do the deal, which is more about internal Tory party management than it was about anything else, you know, they just come out and said, the EU isn't perfect, but for these reasons, it's the right thing to do. I think they could, they could have won it. Because they, they tried to basically do a handbrake turn in the middle of the campaign from the EU's terrible, we have to reform it, to, oh, it's a brilliant thing. And he, he, they didn't talk about the deal afterwards. They, they, that's the sign that it wasn't a great deal because they didn't talk about it. They refused to talk about it and just then went into full-on, we love the EU mode. And I think that was a real problem. What about a different approach by the Remain campaign? You sort of said that their warnings, they would say, about the economy was the right approach. And they did that to the max. They wheeled out the big figures. Is there more they could have done? I don't buy the criticism that they should have talked about how much everyone loves Europe and more about interrailing, all that kind of stuff. I think that's only appealing to the base, the pro-EU base. I think they should have probably been a bit more consistent and had one message, not 50. They had lots of different key examples. They had no one key stat, right? And so if you take their key stat, £4,300 worse off. And that means that Britain would be poorer by £4,300 per household. Don't believe the flimsy claim that at least we get some money back. What happened was it was widely seen as a non-credible number and they stopped using it within two days. If that was going to be your key number, you need to stick with it day in, day out. And 4,300 would have had people, some people criticising it. But what they were trying to do was illustrate in their view that the GDP would go down and therefore that would cost every, and you could argue whether it's a thousand pounds or 8,000 pounds or so on. But I would have stuck with that and I would have accepted that you're going to take some criticism I think the other key thing is they needed a clearer chain of command. And what was their huge benefit was having so many different spokespeople. They really needed to prioritise one or two. And arguably, even though he was the most popular politician at the beginning of the year, would they look back and think, actually, David Cameron shouldn't have been the main frontman. I don't know. And like try and get someone else to be the absolute frontman. And maybe that would have allowed him to keep his job as well. Well, what, I asked Craig Oliver, if Cameron had simply never promised a referendum at all? A lot of people say, look, should he just not have taken on his party and just fought it and wrestled it into submission? I just think that anybody who looks at, you know, uh, have you met Ian Duncan Smith or Bernard Jenkin or 
you know, Steve Baker or any of these people. I mean, have you actually met them and de dealt with them? They become radicalised on the issue. It become an article of faith for them that this this needed to happen, and they they weren't going to back down. They weren't going to let go, um, and they weren't going to let a leader of the Conservative Party get away without facing this. And you know, the Conservative Party won the twenty fifteen general election campaign, saying there was going to be a referendum, and there was no way the party was going to allow that not to happen. And if Somehow David Cameron tried to wriggle off the hook. Somebody would have replaced him who would have had it. The people running the Vote Leave campaign, uh, chiefly two former spads who you'd worked with very closely in government, in Dominic Cummings and, and Paul Stevenson, were you impressed in a sort of um, dispassionate way at the way they successfully ran a quite a guerrilla campaign? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I am uh, impressed by it in the sense of just like, did they cause us problems? Yes, they did. I think that there's been quite a lot of myth-making about it because they won. And when you win, you know, you are a genius. So I remember in 2015 when we were, um, during the, the election campaign, we were endlessly slated for one of the worst campaigns in history. And then we won. And suddenly the, we walked on water and that we were geniuses. And wasn't it amazing that, you know, we'd done this and actually it was one of the greatest campaigns ever. Um, I think there is a little bit of that with the Vote Leave campaign. There were moments where it felt like it was falling apart, where it was really struggling. I think there were moments where they they lashed out in terror and panic. There were massive missteps um, in the campaign, like, you know, when Michael Gove, I'm sure, wishes he'd never said, we've had enough of experts because he got beaten around the head by about it and has actually ever since. Um, so it wasn't the perfectly well-oiled machine. However, did it do extremely well in terms of boiling it down to a slogan, take back control? Yes, it did. Um, did it do well in terms of creating a kind of momentum and energy? Absolutely, it did. But I also think that one of the things that, that I felt was that we had a status quo that we had to defend. The European Union had been there for well over 40 years and it, there was a record there and there were actual real things you could point to. They were able to create kind of a fantasy world where we weren't in the EU and of course everything would be per perfect and you could argue that everything would be perfect because you can't prove a negative. So, I mean, I think that they had a, a lot of advantages. And I'm often asked, what would I do differently, you know, in terms of the campaign? And I always sort of say semi-facetiously that I'd invent a time machine and go back, you know, 40, 45 years and actually make prime ministers and governments over time make the case for the EU. The EU has been a friendless institution in the UK since it was it was founded. Every Prime Minister, and I include David Cameron in that, has used it as a convenient whipping boy when necessary, when it's easier just to, to criticise it. It's never been treated with affection. It was a friendless thing. Nobody was doing its PR. And actually suddenly to expect that in a relatively short period, we were suddenly going to make everybody love it and think it was great. Um, that was pretty naive, really. Pretty naive, really. An epithet, along with several others, that David Cameron may have to wear for the rest of his days and into the history books and beyond. I think the most significant thing of all about the EU referendum campaign 
is just how significant the campaign itself was. It's hardly an original point, but 52-48 is almost the narrowest of margins, just 600,000 or so people voting the other way from a nation of 65 million would have tipped the balance in favour of Remain. Dominic Cummings is fond of writing about branches of history, and June 23, 2016 was a fork in the road when Britain might genuinely have chosen either path. The Leave vote was no accident, but the result of a series of actions by key people on either side of the debate. Five years later, it feels like the divisions opened up in those momentous weeks are only just beginning to heal. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. That's it now for season two. But if you've enjoyed it, why not flick back through our past episodes, which cover everything from the history of pandemics to the role of the cabinet secretary and why Sir Humphrey always wins. My producer this week was Emma Barnaby of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'm taking a few weeks off now for the birth of my second child, but I'll be back later in the summer, bleary-eyed, with a new season of episodes for you to listen to. I'll see you then.